and this court will be adjourned until the jury's verdict is reached. In 1963, at 18 years of age, Keith Bracken of Calgary, Alberta joined the Mounties. He served in uniform for nine years, mostly in Saskatchewan, before hanging up the surge to attend the University of Saskatchewan to obtain an undergraduate degree. To do so, he had to buy himself out of the remaining years on his contract. He went on to obtain a law degree in 1976. Keith was called to the BC Bar in 1977, where he maintained a general practice as a lawyer until his appointment as a judge of the provincial court in 1991. 16 years later, Judge Bracken was elevated further to the Supreme Court of British Columbia, where he sat as a justice until his retirement in the fall of 2018. Along the way, he found time to author a textbook on courtroom procedure and lecture part-time at the law schools at the University of Victoria and Thompson Rivers in Kamloops. Whether you know him as constable, counsel, judge, or justice, Keith Bracken provides an authoritative account of life on the beat, at the bar, and on the bench. In six different decades, Keith Bracken lived and breathed different aspects of law enforcement in Canada. His story is one without errors or pretenses, it's down to earth, and it's incredibly genuine. Summer has finally arrived here in Vancouver. This is episode 11 with the Honorable Mr. Justice Bracken. I'm Dan Coles, and this is Under Reserve. Keith, you joined the Mounties in 1963, is that right? That's right, March 20th. Um, and in those days, you were sworn in. Um, I was sworn in uh, by the superintendent in charge of Calgary subdivision uh, in the morning and caught the train to Ottawa in the afternoon. Now you go through your training and you make sure you qualify before you, we uh, actually are sworn in. But uh, in our day, you were sworn in and a regular member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police by the time you left subdivision headquarters on the morning of uh, your attestation, as they say. And why are you going to Ottawa as opposed to Regina? They had, um, they had two training centers in those days. Um, Ottawa was one at N Division in Rockland. It's right next to the... RCAF Rockcliffe Air Station. Uh, Depot in Regina was uh, also uh, a main center. And I think what the way they did it was when your name came up as the next group or a member of the next group, you went to where that group was going. Um, so I went to Ottawa. Prior to my time in the early 60s and through the late 50s, um, they did part one, part two. So you would do part one in Regina and part two in Ottawa. So. Um, Ottawa didn't have a swimming pool, and swimming was a very uh, significant part of the training in those days. Um, uh, Regina, of course, had a pool, right. and uh, still there. But it's probably the it, same pool. It's a, probably the same pool. I think they fixed it up. Nobody. It, it's a recreational pool now. It's not part of training anymore. Yeah. So I'm sure they use it for some of their uh, um, recovery team, dive team uh, work. But other than that, I think it uh, doesn't have the same roles it used to. But um, they would switch partway through. So halfway through training, which was about nine months, nine and a half months then, you would uh, take the train from uh, depot to Ottawa or Ottawa to depot. I suppose the two trains would cross somewhere across the, uh, the middle of the country. And uh, you'd pick up either riding in, in, uh, in Ottawa or uh, swimming in Regina. Not sure how that worked, but anyway, somebody eventually saw that that seemed to be kind of silly. All members were learning horseback riding? Yes, everyone uh, everyone uh, did equitation up until 
think the fall of 1966. Wow. So I arrived in, in Ottawa at the station with the train um, on a Wednesday evening and Thursday morning I was in stables at 6.30 being yelled at by <laughs> virtually everybody. So it was, uh, it was interesting. There was a chauffeur came to pick me up at the station and I trundled off the station with a shopping bag full of my belongings and a suitcase. And uh, I could see that this RCMP chauffeur, which had a, a similar uniform, uh, was waiting. And I walked up towards him and he said, you're not going to the barracks, are you? And I said, yes. Okay. And he walked away. I followed him, put my stuff in the back of an international travel hall with a uh, RCMP crest on the door. I went to get in the front seat and he said, no, get in the back. <laughs> and it went downhill from there. So, Do you, you come from a policing family? No. No, nobody ever uh, in my family had uh, been involved with the police at all. How did you get the bug? I'm not sure. Um, it, uh, I'd had a dealing with uh, one of the members, uh, not a bad dealing, in uh, Okotosh, where we'd gone to play hockey one night. Uh, he just seemed like a nice person. And, um, and I'd met, uh, had a, my father had a cousin out at Crossfield, north of Calgary, and they were good friends with the local RCMP uh, corporal, I guess. And somehow or another, it, uh, it just found it uh, something that would be interesting. And I was sort of at a loss for something to do after high school. Uh, I finished high school. I'd started early and finished early, and uh, um, so I wasn't quite sure what to do. The University of Calgary was just opening. I think it was in its either first or second year. Yeah. And uh, it was basically a high school curriculum. It was up by McMahon Stadium, and it was just a pile of dust and dirt, one building. You had a choice of two electives. One was uh, uh, physical education, and the other was music appreciation. The rest was basically a continuation of high school. So one of my, uh, one of my friends from high school had uh, wanted to go down. He was part of the military, and one of his friends, who was older than us, had quit school, I think he was 19, and quit school in grade 12 and, and went off to depot. So I went down with him and picked up an application and filled it out, and next thing you know, I was off to Ottawa. It took about 11 months to get through the process. Okay, yeah. And uh, uh, they told me that's what it would take, and that's what it did take. I, I, I imagine depot or the Ottawa uh, equivalent in the 60s is nothing like what it is today. You know, without going into too many details, can you give me a high-level summary of what a day in the life of a, a cadet is, RCMP training in the early 60s? Well, the bugle would go at 6.30. No, I'm sorry, it would go at 6 a.m. And is this an actual bugle? A recording of an actual bugle. Okay, yeah. okay. Uh, the Rivali, the RCMP Rivali. That would be played over a scratchy uh, uh, record that was... Um, uh, there's a system in the guard room where uh, the night guard, a recruit, would uh, be charged with the responsibility at precisely 6 a.m. to turn that on, and that would wake us all up. And uh, by 6.30 or 6.20, we were to be downstairs in our um, uh, fatigues, stable fatigues. We had another name for them, but, um, but anyway, it had to do with stuff we cleaned up at the stables. Um, and uh, we'd be uh, there for inspection. And at 6.30, we'd be marched off to stables, and we'd work there to clean out the stalls, groom the horses, water the horses. The horses didn't have water in their stalls. And, um, and clean all of that out. And it was, uh, it was just a massive operation. 
So he'd have maybe you know, 80 or 90 or 100 uh, recruits in there. We had um, uh, scrapers, two on the scrapers, four pulling it, and all that stuff would be moved and the place would be spotlessly clean and before we left. Um, the depot stables had a uh, printed floor, so there were cracks that were in it. Ours was a smooth floor. Uh, but if anybody, as you were marching out to go get your breakfast, and uh, there was a straw or something that shouldn't be there, turn around and get the brooms and back you go again. So that would uh, start your day. Then breakfast uh, from 7.30, 8.15, back on the parade square to start the uh, morning parade. Then classes until noon. 1.15, back on parade for the afternoon Sergeant Major's parade. Back to classes. You do classes until, I think, usually 4.30. Then there was another parade called the fire picket at uh, 6.15 and uh, the night guards and the fire picket would attend. And uh, if you were those who had, uh, we're getting, they called them defaulters, people who had uh, given some discipline, they had to attend that parade as well. Then you would uh, clean kit, study, do whatever it was you were doing if you were one of the, the workers that day. Um, and at uh, 10.45, lights out, and uh, there's a stand to your beds, so there'd be a roll call at 10.45, make sure everybody was there, and then lights out at 10.45. Next day, it started again. Sounds like a breeze. <laughs> it was seven days a week. Um, you know, not everybody had to do stables on Sunday, but somebody did, but everybody had to get up at 6.30, uh, or get up at 6 and be in stables at 6.30. Then there was a, an evening feed and the bedding down with the horses at, um, at 8.20, 8.30. Yeah. So it was a, you know, it was a long day. The, there was a great emphasis on, on physical training. Right. You know, we were marched everywhere. We, we ran. We had, you know, the physical subjects were uh, foot drill, physical training, police holds, boxing, equitation, of course, swimming. We all had to get a bronze medallion or you didn't graduate. Then there were more practical and, and useful to this very day, things like typing. Um, and uh, you had to type on legal-sized paper, um, FJF space, you know, the standard typing course that was uh, available at that time. No erasures and no typeovers. So if you had a, a, an assignment to do and you got to the last page or even the last paragraph and you had a typeover, you had to do that page over again. So. A couple of the fellows had had decided that they could fix the system a little bit. They wanted to do something on a weekend, but they had a big typing assignment, so they hired a secretary. And on Sunday, they came back with the secretarial work, but uh, she had not been informed about the no typeovers and no uh, no erasures, and so she had quite a few erasures and typeovers. So uh, they had to redo it at three o'clock in the morning to be ready for Monday. So. So it was one of those, you know, it's just one of those places that uh, was very interesting. And, and uh, once you were part of it, you were caught. You know, you couldn't quit. It, it wasn't, uh, you could be fired. Right. But um, if you wanted to quit, you're on a contract and you had to purchase your discharge. So Get out. It's, it's the old, the old RCMP uh, British, uh, British system where you were on a contract. And if you wanted to quit in our day, you had to pay eight months or eight dollars for every uncertain month. Uh, so, if you're in your first year of service, you, you know you've still got 48 months to go, and eight dollars on a salary of three thousand two hundred and seventy dollars a year, 
was a not formidable and an impossible way. So you're trapped. Um, not that everybody, you know, we had our gripes and our, our times when people said, I just want to get out of here. But but most of us were uh, part of the system and, and uh, learning and feeling good about it. Where did you do your service? In Saskatchewan. Okay. Yeah. Went up to, uh, to Maple Creek was uh, my first posting. I spent some time uh, in Ottawa in the band. I was a trumpet player and... Uh, uh, and that was uh, my first assignment. I, w- I was very young when I joined, I was just 18. And I looked young, but um, so they had a tour. One of my friends from, uh, from uh, high school days uh, was there in the band. And one of the drum instructors had been a trumpet player in the band. And so I did that for, uh, for a year and uh, then went to Maple Creek. Spent uh, three or four years or three years, I guess. Then the Swift Current. And uh, then up to a little place called Foam Lake. These are smaller detachments, general duty kind yeah. of policing? Yeah. Maple Creek was a um, small town, general duties. We did the town. And we did the rural area. It's in the southwest corner of Saskatchewan. So Medicine Hat was the first detachment going west. And uh, Gull Lake going east. It was right on number one highway. And, and your, your policing career is in a pre-charter era. Yeah. And I'm picturing a, a criminal code that's a tenth as thick as it is today. We used to be able to carry a criminal code in our jacket pocket. Now, you know, you need a briefcase. <laughs> um, maybe one with wheels to, uh, right. to carry. Right. It's getting bigger and bigger. And of course, you know, ours was a very simple version of it without a whole bunch of case law and so on. Right, right. And it was all pre-charter, as you say. So, so you know, there, were, there was good and bad. I mean, it's good for being able to do policing. You know, you stop somebody, you suspect that they've got some contraband, uh, you could say, do you mind opening a trunk? And uh, mostly they would open. No, not everybody was as easy to deal with as that, but, um, you know, people still had rights. The rights didn't, you know, Canadian rights weren't invented with the Charter. Sure. They were simply documented. Sure. And, and made entrenched part of the Constitution. Did you enjoy your, your service as a Mountie? Oh, very much. Yeah. In fact, people make fun of me, I think, because... I still talk about it so much, but uh, I did enjoy it. It was a, a wonderful time. The people that I worked with, and, and in particular the people I worked for, uh, were some of the finest people I've ever met. But you obviously didn't stay at you forever. No. Um, what happened? Well, I, uh, um, I had met my wife, Robin, in, uh, in high school. And then I went off to Ottawa and did my training. She actually came down for my graduation. Um, and then she, by then, was living in Vancouver. Um, her sister lives here still, and her husband's a lawyer. And um, I took her away from Vancouver and put her in a basement suite in Maple Creek, Saskatchewan. Would have been so, popular. Yeah. Well, it wasn't so bad. We moved to Swift Current, which was a city of about thirteen or 14,000, which was fine. We didn't police the city there. We just did the rural area, so it was a great job. Uh, I think Foam Lake was the uh, the backbreaker. Uh, it was a smaller town, still a very nice town. In fact, I think at one point it was written up as one of the nicest towns in Saskatchewan. It was parkland country, there was a lake nearby. But it was a busy place, and um, I was at work a lot, as, as I think all members were. And, um, you know, things were... Uh, we'd been married probably, let's see, I guess about five years by then. And... Uh, and she had um, wanted me to, to go to university. Um, one of my uh, one of my 
supervisors had a law degree. And uh, when I was first thinking about it, when my contract came up for renewal, I was thinking, well, maybe I'll go now. And uh, my boss uh, at Maple Creek at the time said, oh, well, you should go and talk to, to uh, uh, Logan, who had a law degree. He was uh, subdivision NCO, they called him. And so I went in and talked to him, and he got all enthused about it. So now I had not only my wife pressing me to go, but one of my bosses. And I always thought, well, gee, maybe, maybe he's telling, trying to tell me something. Right, <laughs> but, yeah, uh, yeah. But anyway, he was very, very supportive, and uh, finally I made the decision to go. I took one course at night while I was uh, at Foam Lake. I was in charge of the highway patrol there, and um, my second man and I decided that we would both get an education. He had to finish high school, and, and he did. I started taking a class at St. Joseph's University uh, College in Yorkton, and uh, it was part of Saskatchewan, University of Saskatchewan, and I enjoyed it. And I had a very, very good professor, but it was Singola Walio, who uh, was just the most interesting. And uh, the classes were full of fun and full of life, and you know, you know, he was a high school teacher, but he, I think he had a master's or a PhD, and, and uh, he really made it interesting. So I kind of caught the bug. And uh, then I realized if I took one course a year, um, his master's were September to April, it would take me another 14 years to get my BA. Right. So yeah. I went up and applied to university and, and uh, was accepted and then got into law school. This is an era, I gather, when um, having a university education as a Mountie was an exception. It was, yeah. Not very many people had uh, a degree of any kind. That's not to say nobody had, because some did, obviously. And some had their first degree. Um, Bill Logan, who was uh, my mentor and, and uh, longtime friend, um, who was my, my boss, I guess. Uh, not my immediate boss, but he was uh, kind of the overall boss at Swift Current. Uh, had a BA before he went in, or had close to it. I don't think he actually finished his BA. And then others who had a BA or a BSc, uh, um, when they were in, they, if they wanted to go on for more university training, the RCMP would pay for it. So, so do you, um, to enroll as a full-time student, is that University of Saskatchewan? Saskatchewan um, you, with, you, you end your service as a Mountie? Yes, yeah. I, uh, <clears throat> it was my usual uh, master, uh, master of Financial Planning. I had signed on for one at the end of my five-year term, thinking, well, I'll maybe do one year and see what happens and see how it goes. Then I got transferred. So I signed on for another five. And then I had to actually purchase my discharge. <laughs> okay. So by the time I got to Saskatoon, we had enough money. Robin worked, and um, we had enough money to pay our rent, pay tuition. And uh, I worked one of my... Uh, other supervisors found me a job at uh, placing a little park outside of Saskatoon. They were having lots of vandalism and difficulty and uh, a little place called Pike Lake Park, just 20 miles out of Saskatoon. So I go out there and so I took another intercession classes um, and summer session classes and worked at night and it was great. And of course, uh, I let the guys at the uh, at Saskatoon detachment know I was there and they came out to drink coffee and they did the work. And uh, I studied for my, uh, for my courses during the evening and wrote my essays. So just so I have this right, you had to, to save to buy yourself out of the Mountie so you could go to university? You did, I did, yeah. Wow, that is... Um, yeah. $8 a month. Now what did I have? I can't remember how much I had to pay. It was in around $400, I think. Okay. Yeah. 
So now you're you're a, a young man in your mid twenties. You've done uh, eight or nine years service, and now you're a undergraduate and to be a law student. Right. Of course, I didn't know if I was going to be a law student or not. I, right. I took uh, a degree in economics, which I really liked, and you know, I was part of me was thinking about going on with that. But uh, the deal was, I'd left the force to say I was going to go and um, take a law degree, and so I applied and, and got in. So to be a criminal lawyer, I didn't know. wasn't sure what I wanted to do. You know, criminal law certainly is what I had the most experience with because we prosecuted our own cases in those days. So, All right, hold you know, on, hold on, hold on. You prosecuted your own cases. Yeah, not not you know we wouldn't prosecute a murder, but traffic offenses, liquor offenses, liquor licensing act. Um, you know, um, those kinds of offenses, even up to assaults, minor assaults, uh, we prosecute those as a member. There was no Crown Council system as such, as we know it now in okay. Saskatchewan. There were um, agents of the Attorney General, or AAG, uh, private lawyers who had the contract to appear as Crown. And, uh, but because they had to be paid, um, they didn't pay them for prosecuting traffic tickets. So we did that ourselves. Okay. And, uh, and that was, you know, it was interesting to do. And, uh, of course, you got to make all sorts of good mistakes. And, and uh, now and then, especially with impaired, well, impaired drivers, we didn't do as many. We did some. But the defense lawyers, uh, you know, would be uh, quite keen to uh, take us on. I, I bet. Yeah. So it was interesting. But uh, what's, what's the student experience um, as a law student or otherwise, you know, having been a, a sworn member for not an insignificant period of time, your classmates are smoking pot in the foyer and, and drinking beer and, and doing student things, and, and you've been a stable hand horse riding police officer for the better part of a decade. Well, um, probably uh, there's something to be said about that. First of all, I'm sure some of my classmates were pot smoking, most of them weren't. Um, most of them weren't, you know, they, we'd rank, sure. um, obviously. Uh, but most of them were just out of high school and, and a couple or three or four years of university. So they weren't heavy drinkers or even experienced drinkers. Um, as my mother, uh, when the recruiting officer came to interview my mother and father, um, she was very careful to point out that they were non-drinkers. and. Uh, the fellow that interviewed uh, them said, well, you know, a lot of police officers drink. <laughs> and uh, I had to explain to her gently that that was a bit of an understatement. That was, uh, you know, we, uh, that was our stress relief, you know. That's, sure. that's how we dealt with things. Yeah. And uh, so there was, you know, um, not daily. Um, I don't know anyone who was drinking on a daily basis. No, you wouldn't go home and have a beer. I mean, obviously there were some, but but typically we weren't because you had, never knew when you were going to have to right. go to work. Right. But then on, on a particular night, you get together for a poker game or because somebody's uh, moving or um, something had happened and so somebody would break out a, uh, a bottle of something and, uh, and we, would, uh, we would drink it. Yeah, <laughs> so, absolutely part of the culture. and. Yeah. But that, but that's behind you, I guess, to some degree, because now you're you're a law student. You're you're fully detached from the RCMP. This is now '76. I have the benefit of your your biography on the internet. Yeah. Um, so you look for work. You look for articles. I I did. Saskatchewan. I would have stayed in Saskatoon, which both Robert and I quite liked. It's a lovely city. 
And, uh, but Saskatchewan, the Law Society there had uh, made an agreement with the lawyers that they would not make firm offers to article students until uh, into your third year of your graduation year. So sometime after uh, January 1st of 1976, well, Alberta and BDC hired in the summer between second and third year. Right. Robin's um, uh, sister and, and her husband were here. My parents had moved out here. My sister had moved out here into Vancouver. Um, Robin's mother was here. Um, so looking in on the West Coast uh, seemed like a good idea. We'd spent part of our honeymoon in, on uh, Vancouver Island. So we started looking there. And uh, I looked in Calgary as well. I had a job offer in Calgary that um, that uh, was really interesting and a good offer. And, and sometimes I think it would have been good to take it. But um, the one I liked here was uh, with um, uh, what was then Martin Jollenbunden. Richie Martin uh, was the grandson of Archer Martin, one of the former chief justices of the court. His father was a lawyer. Uh, Moni Joll was um, um, you know, a very uh, principled, very intelligent, top of his class. Um, Paul Bunden uh, had come from Saskatchewan. Somehow we hit it off and, and um, they were wonderful people to start with. And uh, they gave me a lovely office and uh, a telephone and it kind of, uh, kind of went from there. Okay, so that's in, Vic that's in Victoria, is that right? That was in Victoria. And uh, that's where I articled and was called to the bar in 77. And this was a general solicitor's practice, I gather, then? Mostly. They were mostly uh, real property. Yeah. And um, the, uh, the Jaw family had a lumber yard and were doing property development. So that was a source of clientele for, for all of us. Um, Paul Bundon had developed his own practice largely in real estate development and general solicitor's work. Both um, extremely good solicitors, extremely good lawyers, but they didn't have a litigation department, and um, I became that. But uh, you know, I, I didn't really know what I was doing, and uh, I'm not sure that ever changed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so um, eventually, you became a courtroom lawyer. What, what was your what was your bread and butter? Um, mostly work that they would feed me, foreclosure work that Richie had. Uh, he had a number of clients that uh, he dealt with mortgages and foreclosures of mortgages. Uh, Paul and Moni had uh, real estate issues that came up from time to time. And so that's where it came from. Uh, the Bank of BC was one of our clients. So we did some work for them. Uh, I eventually uh, took on some work for the TD Bank. And uh, um, at some point, uh, I think we had... Uh, you know, an insurance company of one kind or another that came in and, and we dealt with. So it's just a general practice. But you, your days of prosecuting didn't resume? No. Uh, once or twice uh, I did some ad hoc prosecuting, but not very much. So how do you become a judge? Well, um, what happened was Bob Metzger uh, worked with a firm in the same building that I worked in. Um, and um, Suddenly he became a judge in the provincial court. And I asked him one day how he did that. And he said, oh, it's, it's easy. I just <laughs> fill out this form. Okay. Now, and when I say that, I don't mean it, um, you know, facetiously. But at the time, it wasn't the job it is now. Um, you know, it was uh, small claims. I think it was 50 or or $100 limit. Um, and it was like the old magistrate's uh, work. 
the court has evolved, and it had started to evolve in 90, well, maybe earlier than that, when David Vickers was the uh, deputy AG and, and uh, uh, McDonald was the um, AG, they developed the provincial court into the court it is now, or got it on its way. So it wasn't, you know, a highly sought after job at that time, but it was still, you know, competitive. Was there a criminal jurisdiction at that point in time, or was it mostly it, small claims? It was a criminal jurisdiction. There was, I think, one judge in Victoria that did uh, kind of just small claims because he liked it. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, he'd done everything before, and he was uh, just saying if somebody wants to have uh, small claims work, I'll do it. So, um, so anyway, I applied, and um, I, I applied, I think, and had my interview. Everybody had an interview then, which they don't now. Um, there's more vetting done at the pre-interview stage, and only a short list of people actually go to an interview. But in my day, everyone did, and um, I had my interview in, I think, October or November, and in uh, the spring of that year, uh, the Chief Justice called and asked if I'd uh, take a position in Terrace. And I waffled a little bit, and um, I didn't get it, as it turned out. Um, so it was a long time before, uh, another five or six years before I was appointed to Victoria. Okay, so this is the early 90s now? Yeah, 91, February 14th. And at this point, uh, there's a criminal jurisdiction, there's some, there's some family jurisdiction in provincial court in the 90s? There was family, um, small claims had gone up by, I'm not sure, I think it was maybe two or three thousand dollars. Um, criminal was still the most significant part of it. Um, I'd been away from criminal law for a very long time, and of course the charter had come in in the meantime, and uh, all sorts of other things had changed. But that was really, you know, the majority of the work. But there was family and youth. Um, that was a separate building in, when I first started. <clears throat> and I think it was, I think it was expected that um, that a, a family lawyer might get the appointment I got, because my first assignments were all in family court, and youth court. And, uh, but it was, you know, it was interesting. I realized then that family law isn't uh, such a bad thing and it has lots of complexities and lots of interesting areas that uh, are very challenging. Does anyone teach you how to be a judge? Well, there are, there are programs, new judges training programs. Um, they're more sophisticated now than they were in our day. But, um, but no, nobody actually says this is what you should do. Uh, we didn't have... Um, a program where you would uh, go off for a couple of weeks and learn, first of all, all the law that you're going to be dealing with, and talk to judges and listen to judges and talk about problems judges face, um, problems of you know social change in your life, the problems of um, uh, you know adapting to a position that's very different from your position at the bar, but still, mm -hmm. you know, part of it. So you know, you had to make some adjustments. Um, and I think now the programs are, are very sophisticated. The provincial court is, in my view, probably the best job in law if you don't want to be a you know, practicing lawyer. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful job and it's full of all sorts of uh, interesting things. I never felt bored. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's hard in its own way. I, I used to say that, you know, after I we went to the Supreme Court, people would always ask, well, how do you find it? What's the difference? I said, well, you know, on Supreme Court, um, the courtroom is serene and your office is chaotic because you have so much to do. And in provincial court, the courtroom is chaotic 
in your office is serene huh. because you don't have quite you don't carry as much out of the courtroom with you as you yeah. do in Supreme Court. You're ruling off the bench more. Yeah, yeah. But you know, all judges work hard at all levels, and uh, I, I think I still feel that um, you know there there should be um, closer uh, closer structure between the two courts. One should not be so. Um, confined. You know, it's the provincial court uh, has talented people that can do all sorts of things in small towns, and they're there. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court is sending masters and judges, you know, to Williams Lake or to Fort St. John to do things that uh, provincial court judges probably could do. They're um, they're administered differently. Your your application is to the province for a provincial court ship judgeship. For a provincial court, yes. Right. And then the, um, we'll explore in a moment the, the Supreme Court is administered federally. Right. Yeah. You were on the provincial bench for 16 years. That's right. Yeah. And um, circuit life, was that a part of being a provincial court judge? Not as much in my day. I, I enjoyed going places. And of course, once you make that known, um, you get sent places. And, <laughs> right. uh, so. Right. Um, you know, I didn't mind sitting in places like Salmon Arm. Uh, we did some legal work for Salmon Arm at my law practice. And um, so, you know, I, I didn't mind going to a place like that. We have relatives uh, on the western side up in just east of Dawson Creek on the Alberta side that farm there. So I was always happy to go up there. And not everybody wanted to go to Fort St. John or Dawson Creek to sit. Um, so when there were vacancies uh, or times when the local judges were away or uh, needed somebody to avoid a conflict of some kind, I, mean, I always put my hand up to go. Um, and in fact, at one point I thought, you know, I'm going to try and sit in every place that the provincial court sits before I'm done. I didn't, I didn't make it, but I came close. Um, Did it weigh on you, the caseload, in the sense of the criminal matters that are regular before you and the family aspect? Family in particular. You know, provincial court deals with one of the most important issues that, you know, the courts deal with, and that's uh, where children are going to be raised and yeah. who's going to raise them. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, removal of children from home. Some authority yeah. comes to a poverty-stricken family, and, and that's usually where it happens. It takes away a child. Um, and, you know, if the court doesn't operate properly, uh, if it doesn't operate efficiently or quickly, or if the lawyers get bogged down, those children could be in foster care and away from their parents for months. And uh, those were those were very serious matters. And uh, there is a provision in the statute, you know, the lawmakers and legislature certainly anticipated that and said, you've got to deal with these cases within 45 days. Uh, very short turnaround mm -hmm. by legal standards. But then it became, because it's impossible to do that, it became 45 days to get the case into court. Then it'd be adjourned and adjourned and adjourned. And, and often, if there isn't uh, the right kind of assistance available, or, or there is a, a problem with the parent that, um, that uh, the Minister of Child and Family Affairs uh, can't properly deal with or doesn't feel comfortable with, um, you know, it could be a very long time child's in foster care. So those are hard cases. Criminal cases obviously have um, lots of things like policing did, lots of people who are basically just ordinary 
kind of people that managed to find ways to get themselves into jams. Yeah. And um, many of them were, you know, kind of a stumble bum sort of guy that's uh, happy to be drinking and partying and, you know, doesn't really pay as much attention to their status in the community or their, um, you know, their responsible uh, responsibilities. And they end up in the court system. A lot of them aren't particularly problematic, but some of them are. And, um, and uh, so some of the more serious ones, um, you know, are, are very serious cases. My very first criminal case was uh, a youth case with a, a robbery where one of the youths uh, broke a, an old glass. You know, they still sold pop in, in glass bottles and broke it over the head of the, the attendant at a remote gas station and gouged his eye with the oh, gee, bottle yeah. top. It's a very brutal crime. Uh, again, when you look into the history of the kids that did it, you find what, exactly what you'd expect. Uh, troubled kids, uh, you know, poverty, uh, bad treatment, yeah. uh, all sorts of things that, that seed the, the future for kids like that. So that was a hard case. Mm. And uh, we had, you know, we had a number of, of hard cases. Driving death cases are very difficult. And, um, you know, there's, uh, <clears throat> there's kind of goes in waves where, uh, I think at the moment, there was one in Quebec a while back where um, uh, somebody who had uh, committed either an impaired driving, I think it was impaired driving, and had killed four people, uh, received a very significant sentence of 14 years. Yeah. Um, that in my day the sentences were were much lower mm. and um, and sometimes inappropriately low I suppose yeah but typically those people you know there are exceptions there are exceptions to virtually everything you can say but typically the person who gets caught in a, an impaired driving causing death is often a first offender yeah often somebody with sympathetic background yeah uh, often somebody who hasn't been um, driving in a particularly egregious way. They've been driving um, to a point where something happened that they couldn't cope with uh, due to their impairment Yeah. and tragic consequences. So the same person driving without those consequences, without that accident, would get a you know, $1,000 fine and yeah. a prohibition. Yeah. The person who happens to have those consequences um, ends up with uh, a huge... Um, trial and sentence and sometimes it's very difficult to find just the right the right spot and, and I think quite honestly we often get it wrong well, one of the questions I had for you um, as a judge on either bench that you sat at um, what are the harder decisions to make as a judge I mean I know you have hard facts you know uh, horrific abuse poverty neglect of children um, crimes of violence the facts are bad but as far as a decision maker, what were the hard types of decisions? Well, for me, I always found family law the hardest, where children are involved, where children will live, um, how they will be raised. Uh, you know, it's not just a simple matter of will they go to church or will they go to a separate or public school or private school. Um, often they were very, very difficult decisions where you have, you know, perhaps a, a a loving and caring father who um, has a temper that uh, he's uh, been guilty of domestic abuse. He, yeah. he still loves his children, but now there's a real sense, a real fear that you can't trust somebody like that with those children 
unsupervised. Some of those are very difficult. Um, driving deaths are always difficult. Accidental, accidental things that result in criminal convictions are always difficult because one of the foundation stones of the criminal laws is having a, you know, a malicious intent or a wrongful intent yeah. to commit the crime. Uh, we've just seen a, a decision at the Supreme Court of Canada where you can uh, take drugs to the point where you are completely um, uh, out of control. Automaton. Automaton. Yeah. And commit a very, very serious uh, crime, such as murder. Um, and, you know, those are the kinds of cases which uh, make it very difficult. Judges deal, I would say, if not on a daily basis, certainly on a weekly basis, with some kind of very strong difficulty. Some are better at, at, at it than others, um, making decisions quickly and efficiently. Um, others uh, might agonize. It might be their own background that makes them agonize. I agonized particularly over wrongful death cases because I attended so many wrongful deaths. Um, traffic accidents, you know, are, um, when you're dealing with traffic accidents on a highway, such as the Trans-Canada Highway or the Yellowhead, both of which I worked on, um, those aren't accidents that bend fenders. Those are accidents that kill people. Yeah. And, and they're tragic. So, you know, you, you live with that. And I carried that memory and those memories into into the courtroom. And, you know, there were two in particular um, wrongful death cases where people were uh, um, guilty of, of negligence, criminal negligence was, uh, or manslaughter were the two that we used to deal with. And again, one was a teacher. Um, another was somebody who didn't have any particular you know, accomplishment in life and uh, maybe been far more careless than they should have been, but the, uh, you know, the, the grief and, and the regret and uh, the mental impact on them was was horrific. And there were two that I, I was aware of and, and uh, had contact with for some time after they'd had those accidents. One was a young fellow at Maple Creek who had... Uh, um, been in a collision where everybody but him was killed and he was the driver. Um, Too often the case. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was a decent young kid who was uh, simply prone to partying with his friends and uh, had tragic consequences that, that weren't intended but uh, were very, very significant. As a, as a judge who was, you know, a decade and a half removed from policing, I, I get the sense that kind of um, boots on the ground perspective sort of could spring back, seated on the bench, yeah. for more of a um, a real life understanding of of looking past the pleadings or the exhibit book to you know life on the road or you know life at a crime scene or in a home. It it, it feels like valuable perspective. Well, you know it was, and uh, <clears throat> it it also um, helped me understand police officers coming into court as any witness does. Uh, it's a little nerve wracking. Sure. Um, the fact that you have to be a police officer and maybe dressed in a uniform, um, um, it doesn't make it any easier. And uh, so I think I was probably a little more understanding of that, um, a little more patient, uh, a little less prone to critical or criticize uh, the police. Um, you know, I made mistakes myself. Uh, I, we had a case in Swift Current where uh, we had to give evidence in Calgary. The case was... Uh, the start of a, a stolen car ring. And I'd gone up to Calgary to do the part of the investigation. We worked with the Calgary City Police. 
uh, at the preliminary hearing, we had a, a somewhat cranky magistrate, as we called them then, doing the preliminary inquiry. And the courtroom is now the Calgary City Hall uh, Council Chamber. Uh, and whenever I see video from that, I, I remember this particular time, but the prisoner's dock was a kind of a balcony in the wall. So they came out to this balcony. There's no steps going up to it. Uh, it was all behind the scenes. The bench was in the middle, judge, and the witness stand was on the other side, looking across to where the prisoners were and down or up to where the judge was. And at one point, uh, I was asked to point out the accused, and, and I was pointing them out, and the judge got upset and said, Constable, um, you keep pointing at me when you're saying the, <laughs> looking at the prisoners. He said, uh, you do know the difference between the dock and the bench, don't you? And my answer was, well, I think I do now, Your Honor. <laughs> I'm tough. So that, <laughs> You uh, learned that the hard way. I learned that the hard way. So you know that sometimes you can say stupid things. Uh, and uh, everybody either laughs or doesn't laugh. The judge likely uh, didn't laugh, but uh, he didn't say any more, so that was a good thing. How did, how did the move or the, the elevation for you come about between the provincial court and the Supreme Court? I think it, you know, I hate to say it's kind of a political thing, but um, the Minister of Justice at that time, when this all started, was uh, Vic Taves. And um, he had just come to power, and of course he was from the reform side of the yes. uh, political spectrum, the reform party. And I think he felt that uh, what they wanted to do was uh, have a clean slate and get a new set of applicants and a new set of approved candidates, and perhaps um, put some of their own people on the uh, vetting committees. So that word was out there. Um, and uh, there was, not to my knowledge, but there was a vacancy in, in uh, Victoria. And uh, one of my friends uh, said, uh, you should be applying for that. And uh, anyway, I did and um, put my application in. I, I'd applied before and others knew that. I, I was interested in the Dawson Creek position <clears throat> that uh, Justice Wilson had and Justice Preston before him. And uh, I was you know, willing to go to that area because of the relatives on the east side of the uh, border. Uh, anyway, so I didn't have an active application, so I put one in. And uh, I think there was a tendency to look for people um, who perhaps had um, you know, experience on a provincial court. Um, I think um, Justice Minister Taves had indicated that he, for whatever reason, wanted to see provincial court judges appointed to the Supreme Court bench. Right. And, um, and he did a number of them, um, several in BC and across the country. One, I think, or maybe two were appointed directly to the Court of Appeal. Okay. Uh, from the trial, provincial trial bench. And for the um, unacquainted, what's the major difference between the Superior Court, uh, British Columbia, the French Court? Uh, the nature of the work is different. Um, provincial Court judges deal with high volumes um, not necessarily simple cases. In fact, you know, there are some that are fairly straightforward and commonplace, but, um, you know, even a, a simple bail decision, does this person get bail or not bail, uh, can, uh, as we know, turn out to be a haunting case where somebody goes out and commits a horrendous crime, which, which has happened. 
uh, family court cases. Uh, there's a murder, double murder of children in Victoria a few years back. Somebody who was out, not, um, I think he was charged with some domestic assault and was, was out on bail. Um, he's been out for quite a while, so it wasn't a big problem. Um, so those questions, you know, those issues are complex. Um, Supreme Court do a lot more civil, yeah, a lot more, um, you know, dealing with banks, credit unions, uh, insurance companies, Com uh, commercial, yeah, commercial disputes, ICBC cases, yeah. uh, and so on. There are some, um, obviously, criminal cases. You do jury trials on Supreme Court, which are wonderful things to do, and, and for those that like them. Uh, very, very enjoyable. You believe in the jury system? <clears throat> I do, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a, uh, have a, a story to tell because in, in my day in policing, we didn't have sheriffs. We policed the courtroom. We did the prisoner escorts. We did the jury guards. So as a junior constable, you uh, sit outside jury rooms. And those old court buildings that they had in Saskatchewan, um, you can hear everything they're saying. And so... <laughs> I got to listen to a lot of jury verdicts, and you could tell which way they were going. We were sworn to secrecy, of course, but uh, but um, you could. Uh, as a result of that, I became very convinced that uh, juries were very effective. Now, sometimes they probably get it wrong, but um, and watching juries in Supreme Court as a judge, um, I think it's a marvelous system, and and it's very hard for jurors. Uh, they have a hard time. They're not used to making those kinds of decisions. And they often make it on very highly conflicted facts. Yeah. Very, very talented lawyers arguing on both sides and they have to come up with a decision. So, um, you know what, I'm sure there are jurors, um, for example, uh, on the David Milgard jury, um, I'm sure they were all 100% convinced of his guilt. The yeah. evidence, if you look back at the evidence, um, some of it's repeated in court of appeal cases, um, it was very convincing. You know, his friends said that his pants were covered with blood. They saw him uh, go near the body, all that sort of stuff. Uh, obviously, uh, the police had either gotten to them or they just decided to make up a story for one reason or another. Or maybe there's more to it, but, but, um, but David Milgard certainly did not commit that crime. Mm -hmm. But those jurors uh, had a very powerful prosecutor uh, in that case. And I'm sure they were... 100% convinced. Maybe some of them still are. Where did you sit as a, as a Supreme Court justice? In Victoria. We sort of started this show off with a day in the life as a, as a recruit or a cadet at depot. Forty years later, what's uh, the day in the life of a Supreme Court justice in BC? Well, I'll start by saying that the judges at the Supreme Court level in BC, and I don't mean to isolate them from, from other judges, but judges I think generally work. <clears throat> work very hard. And uh, judges in the Supreme Court will typically go in in the morning, depending on what you're doing. Uh, if you're the chamber's judge, you will see in Vancouver here, uh, a little cart comes in with all of the, the um, chamber's uh, materials. All of the um, files are there. Uh, it's impossible really to read them all because you just get them. Uh, but you can read the list and look at some that experience tells you might be more difficult or ones you should be prepared to hear and read a little bit before you go in. Um, some days you have just one thing to read, so you can read it. 
and uh, you're on top of it. Um, then you went to the courtroom. And it's a chamber's day. You just keep dealing with whatever they, whatever they serve. Right. It's, it's uh, the batting cage. Exactly. Um, it's better now because there's a lot more regulation and, and preparation in at the registry level to make sure that that the cases are properly prepared, properly filed. Materials are there. If it's not there, um, cases sent away. If you're doing a trial, you come in in the morning. Generally speaking, you'll either sign orders or pick up on little things that you've said, well, can't finish that today, but let's meet at 9.30 tomorrow morning and we'll deal with that. There are probably pre-trial issues. During a jury trial, there may be uh, evidentiary issues that you wish to uh, deal with the counsel before the jury comes in. So there's always something. Generally by nine, most judges are at work of some level. Mm -hmm. By 10, the judges are in the courtroom, um, 12.30 to one, often, um, Chamber judge, for example, will be obliged to sign desk orders. Yeah. So you'll get a two-foot stack of orders to uh, um, of files to go through and read them, and uh, might be probate or might be uh, consent divorces, undefended divorces, or other orders that need to be dealt with. Um, and then you go back in at two, and you work till four, and come out at four. Most judges don't leave the building at lunchtime. I think there used to be a time when I first started practicing, you see the judges all trundling off to the Union Club in Victoria. For oh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> that doesn't happen anymore. And, uh, I think most judges eat at their desk. Yeah. I, uh, I came up reading a lot of Rumpole the Bailey, and I have this sort of romantic notion of, you know, Union Club type lunches and, yeah. you know, a, a small sherry with your pie and you wipe the crumbs off your waistcoat and then you re return to the courtroom. I was looking forward to that myself, <laughs> but it never occurred. Um, you know, I, I can remember one or two of the rumple ones where the judge would go in full dress to a limousine and be driven to wherever it is they're on the sizes, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it, um, it, it isn't the way. Judges uh, do work very hard. They are very conscientious. Uh, they are very tired. Um, maybe, maybe more so than they should be. Uh, there probably should be more judges in BC than there are. Um, but that's the way it is. It's difficult to change. The provincial court, um, you can change the establishment of, of the judges uh, simply by appointing more judges. But uh, the Supreme Court, it's in the Judges Act. Yeah. Each province has a certain number signed. And uh, you don't change it without changing the act. So it's a, quite a difficult thing to do. Are judges at either level a collegial bunch? Friendly. Um, and somewhat collegial. I, I don't know that I would say, you know, obviously everybody on the court has their friends. Of course. You know, a um, um, friend of mine, Justice Perlman, and I have been doing canoe trips together since we were both young lawyers. Um, others have close friends on the court. In terms of parties or social events, uh, there is a Christmas um, uh, party that, that is organized in Vancouver. Um, there is a November retirement dinner where the judges who are retiring that year are honored and, uh, um, and that uh, all judges retired or, or sitting or invited to that and uh, many attend mm -hmm. for years and years after. But other than that, no, I, I, I don't know that I'd say, maybe just that I wasn't collegial, but um, you know, we, we certainly got along together. Yeah. Our particular group in Vancouver had a little Christmas due every year. Um, usually at a private home. Right. And it was, uh, 
um, often included the clerks and the staff. So that was a very pleasant evening. And uh, I ask because I, I, I picture it, it being isolating. I mean, if you're a if you're someone like myself and you're you're a barrister and you're building your practice and you're a partner at a firm and you're trying to win business and raise your profile, you you're engaging with the community and you're attending all variety of events and, and shaking hands where you can. And I would expect much of that becomes less acceptable when you know your objectivity and, and free from any sort of perception of bias or favoritism has to potentially, I guess, evaporate overnight if you're being elevated from private practice. Well, it's true. You know, I had um, um, some that I would, you know, former partners, Paul or Moni, that I would uh, get together and have lunch with, but neither of them appeared in court, so it was not a, a problem. Um, I had a number of people. One of my uh, good friends from policing days in Saskatchewan was um, a chief of police in, in the uh, Victoria area. Um, so, you know, people like that, it, it wasn't easy for me to socialize with a group of people that I identified with being former police officers. Um, not in the sense that, you know, I still had the police attitude, but, uh, but they were friends. Um, lawyers, I didn't find it all that difficult. I, um, a lot of our friends were really friends that were formed on the basis of our kids were friends with each other and we became friends as parents. So a lot didn't overlap. Um, we had a collegial bunch in, in Victoria, I think. Um, we all got along. I don't remember any, uh, you know, any strong disagreements or grumbling amongst, uh, you know, there, there wasn't that two or three getting together to, to mutter about one of the others who they felt was doing something inappropriate. Um, so I think we all got along very well. And, uh, but in terms of outside parties, mostly by the time the day was over, um, you still had work to do for one thing, and you always um, you always had decisions that were reserved judgments, and you were always had them on your mind because you never had enough time to get them done. Right. So uh, the sitting schedule was three in court, one week out. What called a reserve week, where you could theoretically at least write your reserves, but the reserve weeks are often. Um, filled up with things that you didn't finish and there's nobody can find any time except for that week or they're shorter judge and need somebody to sit for a few days for the entire week or you're on a long trial and you go through four or six weeks of a trial um, and um, then your schedule they just pick up your regular schedule after that so you get behind and there's always that pressure um, so I don't think you know it's it's not party central uh, by any stretch of the imagination. The uh, judges are, tend to be more serious, I think, than, uh, than lawyers. Um, mm. And part of that might be the sense that you can't walk down the street without you know, somebody around my street noticing who you were. Right, you know, sure. Having a lunch, you know, you'll be out with two or three of your colleagues. If lawyers are there, they'll notice who you are. Yeah. And some of them are lawyers that probably have appeared in front of us, but but you might not remember, you know, you've got 15 or 20 lawyers in a day. Uh, you, you won't remember them. And if they do what they're supposed to do and do it well, you certainly won't remember them unless they come back again. <laughs> good, so, good advice. Yeah. So. Uh, somewhere, though, you did find time to start editing um, British Columbia Court and Procedure. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I'd be lying if I said I read it cover to cover, but it's, it's, it's a text that addresses a lot of 
aspects of the practice law that I think are quite romantic um, forms of, of address and communication with the bench and, and dress and decorum. Had that always been a, a passion of yours, that aspect of the practice, or? Not so much a passion. The way I got into that was Dan Ferguson, who was a retired judge from Ontario Superior Court. Um, he uh, had come out to uh, UVic as what they called a judge in residence. Judges on the Superior Court, again, uh, different from provincial courts, uh, are, if you've had enough service both before and after the one-year um, sabbatical, I guess you could call it, it's not quite one year, it's 10 months, I think, um, you can take some time off and do something that's uh, related to your work or writing a book, for example. Dan came out uh, to UVic. I was teaching, and I was teaching a course, uh, an advocacy course. And of course, he uh, and the other judges, Jeff Oliphant was another one who uh, sat on the Oliphant Commission, and a number of others from various courts across the country uh, came to Victoria, stayed here for the 10-month period, and they would often settle in my class. Uh, we became friends. And uh, he had uh, been working on this book and carrying around these big, tubs of Tupperware tubs with piles of stuff in it. So he said, we want to do a BC edition, would you do it? And so I, of course, committed to it without really thinking it through. And even though it's a, an editing, um, it, it uh, still took a lot of time. Now I had had help. Uh, Monique Dahl was one of the law clerks who um, was working at Victoria and had some time to kill after her clerkship was over and before her PLTC started. Um, so she helped out. We had a number of lawyers and other judges who wrote sections. Um, the history section was uh, written by Justice Block. Mm -hmm. uh, Justice Hinkson, uh, as he then was, wrote uh, a large section. And uh, others, uh, law clerks and former law clerks, uh, contributed to it. So it took a while. I think I may be the only living person who's actually read it cover to cover. Okay. Um, but it's a useful book. Yeah. And uh, I used his version of the PC book, which I had a copy of, or the Ontario book, which I had a copy of, and, and I used to use that. And uh, oddly enough, I found a number of judges who are very complimentary about the book. When you're going from a, you know, a strict labor law practice and coming into the criminal court, yeah. it's nice to have uh, an idea of evidentiary issues and, and how the process works. Meeting with counsel in chambers, and I don't mean the batting cage, I mean a judge's office. Yeah. There's a section in the book on that. I am not familiar with that practice outside of television. Is, is that a, a thing? It, not anymore, I don't think. It used to be. Uh, it used to be that judges would often um, invite counsel to their chambers to say, you know, look, this case... Well, you're not that far apart. You know, it seems to me that you should be thinking about a settlement. Right. You know, rather than do this five or ten day trial, have you thought about these kinds of issues? And the judge might, you know, identify an issue that the lawyers hadn't really considered or had considered but had rejected as being important. Uh, now the judge thinks it's important. You might go out in the hall and think a little harder about settlement. So yeah, it was very common. Uh, jury trials. Once the jury was charged retired, uh, any corrections to the charge were argued, uh, the judge had settled the charge. Uh, very often, uh, the next thing that happened were the judges 
invitation to go back into chambers uh, if it was evening, uh, to sit uh, and talk and uh, socialize. Mm -hmm. it, it was wonderful because it gave you a chance to talk socially and right. informally with right. the judge. Right. It also gave you a chance to hear what the judge's views are. Uh, you know, we're all waiting. Judges wait with the same amount of anticipation, I think, uh, on a jury verdict as, uh, as lawyers do. Um, so it was, it was a very pleasant, sociable thing. But then something happened to change it. I think there was an incident of some kind, and, and judges became very uncomfortable with having counsel in their chambers. Right. And uh, so I think it may still happen in smaller centers, but I think for the most part now, judges avoid it. And, uh, I love the idea of it. I mean, it, it speaks to a, a simpler, maybe more honest and familiar time where the, the bench and the bar are socialized more. But imagining going to the Vancouver law courts and going into a judge's office, I just I yeah. can't picture it. I can't imagine. Um, I, I don't think I've ever seen, you know, we used to have uh, outside offices, uh, chairs for people to sit where they were waiting to see the judge. Wow. But now, I don't think uh, I don't think it ever happened. Um, certainly not in the last few years of my time on the bench. Probably the last at least ten years. Uh, I don't think we ever saw counsel. Um, the last one I remember was I was uh, slated to do a lovely little criminal trial with very good counsel, and uh, I was all set to have a full week uh, in Victoria with this lovely uh, little trial. And uh, at uh, 9.30 in the morning, the, uh, the lawyers came in with the trial coordinator and said, we've just settled it. Uh, can we speak to you uh, first thing in the morning and uh, we'll deal with the sentence. And um, I, of course, uh, did that. We had a little visit in the courtroom these are people I knew and had known from the bar days and provincial court days. And then the next day I was on a plane to Vancouver <laughs> doing a complicated labor injunction. <laughs> uh, so, and that was the only time. Mm -hmm. And I think now yeah. you'd have to be very close to the judge and a very trusted lawyer yeah. to come in. Uh, and of course, if you are and the other side isn't, that's a problem. not going to happen. No. And you can't meet with one and not the other. Right. Uh, Keith, you've had a, a, a big career. Is, is Looking back, is there anything that you wish you'd done? I mean, I, I know you spent time in the Yukon and, and up north, and you've sat in, I guess, almost all of the registries in the province, but yeah. was there some aspect of the practice of law or judging that you didn't get to do? Well, you know, I'm, I'm back doing some part-time lawyering again. And I jokingly said, but only half jokingly, that um, people would say, why are you doing that? And I said, well, I'd like to try and get it right this time. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, part of me thinks, um, I wish I'd been a better lawyer. Uh, I wish I'd stayed at it longer um, and practiced uh, until, you know, I decided not to practice any longer. Um, but it, um, it didn't happen that way. I, I did go to the bench. And, of course, once you're doing that, it's very difficult to go back. Yeah. Some people have done it. Yeah. Joe Wood went back uh, from the Court of Appeal. Joe Wood actually, uh, I, he 
practice with my uh, brother-in-law Wayne Powell for a number of years, and um, and so we had that connection to him. And then he moved to Duncan after he retired from Blake's. So he retired from the quarterly, went to Supreme Court, then Court of Appeal, then back to practice. And then he retired from Blake's. Um, I think they have a policy on retirement. And he was looking around for something to do and ended up uh, moved to Duncan. He ended up replacing me on provincial court. And uh, I always said, you know, uh, Joe Wood got to provincial court bench uh, the hard way. <laughs> but uh, but I, uh, I think, you know, it, it, um, there are things I wish I'd done differently. Um, I had a deep affection for my work in the RCMP. I really enjoyed it. It was, uh, I, I never, ever went to work without laughing. You know, every day we had something to laugh at. Um, it was always sometimes, uh, sometimes funny, sometimes people were funny. People are so interesting. Um, and policing in those days was a lot more compassionate. It's a lot more cut and dry in the larger centers, of course it is, but as it has to be. But even now, rural policing, I think, is, is much different. Our doors were always unlocked. They were always open. You could walk in. Um, we, um, we often did our work without sidearms. Um, it was, you know, we rarely wore them around town if we were doing town policing. Daytime investigation out in the country, you wouldn't wear, you know, what we called a Sam Brown in those days. Yeah. Um, but now, you know, it's, uh, I picked up my, my daughters in the RCMP teaching at uh, Depot uh, in Regina, and you pick up her um, stuff she wears. Yeah. You know, I don't know how they do it. It, it must weigh about 30 or 40 pounds. And, and all the gear they wear and Absolutely. carry it, uh, it, it, to me, doesn't look very good. <laughs> and uh, it looks a little formidable. Uh, I know it's all for safety, and, uh, and that's, I'm all for that, particularly for my daughter. But it's a different kind of policing than we had. Um, we were more likely to be uh, socializing, more likely to be issuing warnings uh, than traffic tickets. Um, we got to know people. Yeah. Uh, twice a week, we had a system, and you hear this now, of farmers complaining about rural crime. Twice a week, we ran what we called a night patrol. Two members would uh, work a regular day and then have supper and then go out and work all night. Um, and you'd just drive all over the rural areas. Uh, you'd pick a section of your detachment area. Um, we'd stop all the cars we saw, um, say hello, talk, often get invited for coffee. Uh, we'd hear things, we'd find out um, the kind of rumors that were out there. Uh, we'd find people, uh, you know, who were um, hardened criminals traveling. Um, you know, one night we found a, a like a budget rented truck. It wasn't budget in those days, but it was a rented truck. And it was full of burglary equipment and two well-known criminals, yeah. long, long records, sitting on the side road uh, somewhere way out in the country. Um, we said, what are you doing here? Oh, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're uh, just just traveling around. And so what have you got this big ax for? What about this? And, and the uh, criminals in those days, you'd blow safes with uh, nitroglycerin. So we had a good look. We didn't find any, but yeah. uh, lucky for us. <clears throat> but those are the kinds of things you find. And, and even knowing that somebody is being stopped on a rural road that's uh, miles away from anywhere in the middle of the night, sent a message. Sure. So we did that twice a week. 
And, uh, you know, I'd ask my daughter when she was uh, working in Alberta, do you do a night? Patrol? Oh, yeah, all the time. I said, well, like, no, we just work at night. But now policing is drawn mostly to the towns and villages and cities. That's where the action is and that's yeah. where they're needed. Yeah. The 911 system, which we did not have, um, uh, is responsible for keeping police close to where the action is because people that would never call before, and of course it's a good thing that they can call, uh, do call. Uh, whereas in our day, you probably wouldn't hear uh, many of those calls at all. And, uh, you could peacefully go out. A lot of our areas were without radio. Um, you know, you're on your own. Even in Swift Current, which was a larger center and working on number one highway in the middle of the night, um, the radio room during the week would close at midnight. So after midnight, if you're working three in the morning, you're on your own. Wow, and, uh, yeah. So uh, I remember stopping an American who turned out to be a highway patrolman from one of the southern states. And uh, we went for coffee and he said, how many people are, are working? And we invite them up. I said, well, I'm the only one. I said, well, where's the next closest person? I said, I don't know. I heard somebody out at uh, Assiniboia, which is about 80 miles away. Uh, so they're around. Well, who, who would you call if, if you needed help? I don't know. <laughs> you know yeah. Uh, we used to use pay phones. You know, you'd stop somebody that was suspicious and you'd have them follow, follow you to a pay phone at a service station. And you could phone a number in Regina where the... Um, the uh, Prime Index guy was working at night and he'd give you the information you needed. So I could do a warrants check or something like that. So it was uh, it was a different time. I don't think Mounties today have any idea how good they have it. Well, they, they you know, they don't have it good. Uh, they have um, a much more difficult job. Yeah. They have uh, a very challenging clientele. Um, People aren't nearly as respectful mm. uh, or cooperative. Yeah. Um, you know, there are all the cartoons that you can see of, you know, somebody struggling and, until, uh, uh, and all the cell phones come out, nobody yeah. chimes in to help. Right, right. You know, you know I've had, on number one highway, I've had semi trailers stop. You know, they go by and see that it looked like I was outnumbered and maybe having a difficult time. Um, and the brakes would go on and they'd stop and back up. Um, it happened to me once, and I know other people have the same thing. Uh, so it, you know, it's it's a very difficult time. They have far more calls. Yeah. They're under far more scrutiny. Uh, they have a far more challenging um, uh, job intellectually. Uh, they have a far more challenging job physically, I think too. Um, and uh, you know, and as we've seen, I, you know, I. Everybody has a view. I have my own views on, on the number of police shootings. We didn't have nearly that many, um, but then we didn't have nearly that many pulling knives and so on. So I don't know the answer to that, but it is a problem that needs to be corrected. And I'm not sure the answer, but the answer isn't sweeping it under the rug or not, not dealing with it. Uh, the inquest that's going on this week, I think, in New Brunswick and inquests like it are, are put a bright light on those incidents and uh, hopefully there'll be some some change um, it's uh, it's an issue that uh, that we didn't have to deal with in the same way yeah. uh, we could police a dance by ourselves and uh, you know you can't do that anymore no so. no uh, Keith thanks for your time today 
Hi, um, you're welcome. Thank you for your service. It's been uh, really wonderful chatting with you. Great, thank you. It's been uh, nice of you to have me in. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Judge Bracken as much as I did. Keith is a wonderful ambassador for all aspects of law enforcement. If you aren't uh, currently subscribed to the URP on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, uh, please consider doing so. And if you enjoy the content, leave us a review. That is it for our show today. Until next time, I'm Dan Coles, and we're under reserve. <laughs>